at a fearful 3,000 pounds per square inch, the Nile crocodile exerts immense pressure in his bite. Some bites go up to 5,000 pounds per square inch. That makes their bite 70 times that of the human. Now, you've bitten your cheek before, so you know how that feels. Imagine that times 70. The 64 razor-sharp, cone-shaped teeth sink deep into flesh. They can easily crush a lion. There are seasons of our lives that feel that way. That type of pressure or stress bearing down upon us, it feels intolerable. Just as that croc takes his prey down to the very bottom of the sea, he holds it there till every last bubble, till every last air, till all is out. That too is how life can feel. Some stress can hardly be described, yet it can be vividly felt. It could be a series of small blows, one that comes one after another through the course of a week. It could be something big, some major accident, some kind of devastating sin or one huge loss. Someone once said that we are either in a trial or getting ready for the next one. Our Lord understands our pain. And he felt the grip of a trial. Overwhelmed by the prospect of the cross, this morning we find our Lord in agony, suffering. There's a great stress upon his soul. His agony is one that is not unlike our own, yet is quite different than our experience. You need to know this morning that Jesus Christ understands your trial. In our text this morning, we will glean important lessons from his bitter cup. I want to approach this text this morning up front with a lot of explanation. I want to walk through the passage and explain what's happening. And at the end, I want to come back and fill that in, applying what we've learned. It'll be heavy explanation up front and heavy application in the end. We pick up in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. Jesus just celebrated the Passover. We've worked our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. In that Passover, he instituted the Lord's Supper. We'll partake of that today. We call it communion. In that meal, he also predicted a traitor, someone you know as Judas Iscariot. He would go and eventually betray the Lord. Now, I realize it's Christmas time. Our verse-by-verse series in Matthew has indeed brought us to the crucifixion of Jesus, an Easter event. Here we discuss it at Christmas. Maybe unusual timing, perhaps, but know this. Jesus was born to die. So the connection lies there in the fact that we discuss his death. It's the reason he was born. I want to pick up reading in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's Jesus and his disciples. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, 
and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. I would call these first six verses of our account verses of denial and desertion. These are verses of denial and desertion. Jesus and his disciples walk to the Mount of Olives. They've departed from their dinner that took place at a place called the Upper Room within the city of Jerusalem. And then outside of Jerusalem, just a few hundred yards to the east, is the Mount of Olives. We note here that it's nighttime, darkness, presumably a clear night. There's no street lights by which to operate. They would be guided by the moonlight and the stars. But a song drowns out that quiet flap of leather against the road. In verse 30, they're singing a hymn. Their Passover celebration, remember, they've just departed from their Passover celebration. Their Passover celebration included the singing of songs. They would sing a portion of the Psalms. They're called the Psalms of Hallel, meaning praise. It concluded or it ended with Psalm 118. I want to read to you some of the verses of this psalm. Just consider the deep meaning this took on as Jesus and disciples sang toward the Mount of Olives. Remember, these are his final hours. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. For my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, and I extol you. You know, there is a way that we sing our songs in the sun. There is a way in which we sing when things are well. But I'll tell you what. There is something that happens to our song when the storm comes. It changes the way we sing. It adds a whole new depth of meaning to our song. And I wonder if that was not the experience of our Lord that night. You note there that at some point, at the end of that song, Jesus then spoke to his disciples. He announced to them, you will all fall away. The Greek word there is scandalizo. You can hear our English word scandal in that word. Such defection by Judas than by his disciples, it is indeed scandalous. Jesus is the shepherd. He's going to die. The disciples are sheep. They will scatter. In fact, in just a few days, John chapter 20, verse 19, it locates them all inside of a locked room. Failure wasn't a badge that only Judas wore. All of the disciples wore it as well. And the disciples, they didn't believe Jesus. 
when he shared this. They, they didn't believe what he predicted. You heard Peter, as the case has been through the Gospel of Matthew, he's the, the, the one drafting the reply to this prediction by Jesus. He speaks in one way on behalf of all the disciples, but he speaks on behalf of himself. All may fall away because of you, but I, I never will. Matthew, he likes money just as much as Judas did. James and John love their fishing. Nathaniel never did believe anything good came out of Galilee. And after Simon the Zealot, he follows anyone who screams loudest against Rome. I will never fall away from you, Jesus. But our Lord then sharpens that prediction. He gets what I would say is uncomfortably specific. Oh, Peter, you don't understand. You will deny me tonight. You will deny me in just a few hours, and you will deny me three times. Luke records more. Jesus also said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, Peter. See, Peter's not only going to fall away, but he's going to deny Jesus as well. And his denials are going to conclude before a rooster crows. Now, the Roman army split up their night watch into four different segments through the night. The first would have been through 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock p.m. The second watch is 9 o'clock to midnight. The third is midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. In fact, on one occasion, Jesus used this way of keeping time to teach. Mark chapter 13, verse 35. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. The end of that third night watch, 3 a.m., was marked by the blast of a trumpet. The Romans called it Galicinium, but they nicknamed it the rooster crow. So whether Jesus here is referring to that trumpet blast let out at 3 a.m. by the Roman trumpets, or whether it's simply the crowing of the morning rooster, the point is that Peter will in fact deny Jesus three times. These verses capture the denial and the desertion of Jesus. Verses 36 to 46 contain his agony and appeal. The agony and appeal of our Lord. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. 
and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Jesus has entered Gethsemane. The Hebrew meaning is oil press. It's a fitting name for the type of agony Jesus experienced. His soul was in a press. Olive trees would have filled this area. Jesus and his disciples visited it often. In fact, Judas knew about this. Challenge chapter 18, verse 2. Now Judas, who was betraying him, also knew the place. Because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. It's a meeting place for Jesus and his followers. And you notice that in entering the the, the garden, Jesus left eight disciples, almost maybe at the the front or the gate of the garden, keeping in mind there were 11 total. Judas had already departed to the darkness. Three disciples are going to journey in further. That's Peter, James, and John. And Jesus will go yet further in by himself. He shares his emotional state, and he's appealing to his friends in his time of suffering. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Your Bibles read, he's crushed with sorrow, or he's swallowed up in grief. And notice the location of this sorrow. He says, my soul is swallowed up. You know, just a few hours, Jesus will make a slow walk to the cross. And there's a a particular kind of physical torture he would experience. But here it's bigger than that. It goes beyond that. It's at the very core of his soul. Oh, if only the cross was physical. He's so sad, it's as though he could die. I want to point you back to verse 30 for a moment. Remember, Jesus just sang a psalm of praise to God. It's a good reminder that in our lives, sometimes the joy of the Lord, it may not be a smile. Suffering and joy, these aren't mutually exclusive. Obedience before God, obedience may mean suffering. But what else does obedience mean? Obedience means joy. For the Christian and for the Christian alone, it's possible to suffer and experience joy as unusual or as profound as that may be. Jesus is able to praise God on the walk, and he's able to also speak a deep grief when he gets there. And that leads him to, I would say, what is the one best hope he has, and that is prayer. In fact, this whole garden scene revolves around three main prayer sessions. In his first, remember, he's gone even further into the garden. Luke records he's about a stone's throw away from Peter, James, and John. He's alone. 
He's in the darkness of the night. It's just Jesus and his Father. And if his prayer posture is any indicator of what's going on in his heart, what does the Bible say? He fell on his face. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In the Old Testament, a cup symbolized the wrath of God. Isaiah 51, verse 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah writes in chapter 25, verse 15, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. You see, it's not just that Jesus would receive the torture of crucifixion. It's that the wrath of God is going to come down upon him. You see, God holds a righteous wrath against sin. This wrath of God must be appeased or it must be satisfied. And that's because God is infinitely holy. God is infinitely pure. He's completely sinless. And a sinful man cannot coexist. A sinful man cannot be with a pure God. There's a great separation that exists between God and man. And the only way to, to, to close that gap, to eliminate that gap, to be right with God, there's some kind of a price must be paid. His wrath must be satisfied. And we must understand that either you and I will eternally pay the price for that in hell, separate it from God, or else Jesus has paid that price. And by faith in him, we are made right with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 declares that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. You see, the wrath of God against you and I is completely satisfied by faith in Jesus by trusting that he took upon himself the price that you and I owe for our sins and our sins are completely forgiven. I believe that what he felt, that wrath of God, that separation from God as he took on sin, I believe that was his greatest weight that night. Now think about it. Leading up to this point in time, throughout all of eternity, looking back, it has been perfect unity among the Godhead. In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, Luke says that he's in agony, he's praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. That means here that either the stress caused him to break out in, in a serious sweat, or else he experienced something called hematidrosis. And this is where the, the capillary, capillary blood vessels that surround the sweat glands, they rupture. And it allows the blood to leak into those glands. And then as a person sweats, the ducts are going to produce uh, blood that is mixed with sweat. And it looks as though someone is sweating blood. This condition is extremely rare. But it seems to occur in people that are under severe stress or mental anxiety. And one medical journal records that it happened to people awaiting execution. Can we say that Jesus understands our stress and our pressures 
and our fears and our anxieties? I think he can. And I wonder if his disciples, as he came back to the three of them in the dark, if they could see his face and what they would have thought as they saw the trails of the blood and the sweat mixed coming down and dripping into his beard. He speaks to these three disciples through Peter. Remember, Peter's protesting his loyalty to Jesus just a few moments ago, and now it appears as though he's already blown that test. And Jesus is calling them to watch and pray. He tells them to guard against temptation. John Bunyan, a Puritan author, writes, Prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Difficult to know exactly what the temptation was that Jesus spoke of. Maybe it was the temptation to sleep. Jesus told them to watch and pray, but they're sleeping. Maybe they're, they're tempted to not pray and watch. Maybe it's even the, the temptation to defect once this whole episode concludes. Jesus is about to be arrested and they'll be tempted to flee from him. You see that he acknowledged the, the eagerness of their spirit. That's good. There's an inner desire to obey Christ. They possess that. You and I know that. We feel that. But also we understand the flesh. The flesh is weak. Our sinful hearts, they long to pursue cravings. Paul articulates it in Romans chapter 7, verse 19. The good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Jesus is rallying them to to watch and to pray. That brings us to the second session in verse 42. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. This is about the similar summary, maybe a shorter summary from that first session. I see similarities here to what already took place. Again, Jesus appeals to my Father. The Jewish people would would hardly write his name, let alone speak it, and Jesus freely calls God my Father. Now, it's good that the Jewish people understood. They kept reverence for God. That's right. But Jesus always called God my Father. He's given you and I a depth of intimacy with God that we would not otherwise have. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And when Jesus taught you and I then to pray to God, what were the first two words he gave us? Our Father who art in heaven, and so on. There's a second theme that continues from that first prayer session into the second. Jesus continues to submit to God's will. I think this can be hard. That word submission has fallen on hard times in our day. We already know the bent of the human heart is to be independent, to be unsubmissive to God. The drumbeat of the world isn't helping But Jesus knows that there is no better place to stand than within the will of God. Hard as that may be, painful as that may be, there is no better place to be. Andreas Kostenberger says it this way, in this Jesus' darkest hour, 
he models for his disciples and future believers the cost and necessity of full submission to the will of God. Submission is not always pleasant and often painful, but it is always worth it. Well, thirdly, sadly, Jesus again finds disciples sleeping. There's a temptation as we read in the Bible to demean things like this. Well, if I was Peter, I wouldn't have been sleeping. Peter better get his act together and stay awake. But I'm not sure I would have done much better. I'm thinking that Jesus, here in the middle of the night, is praying for a length of time. Each time he's praying. In verse 40, he's indicating he's praying for one hour on one of those occasions. I know I'm not much better off than Peter or those disciples. My habit each morning is to wake up, and to get out of bed, to go out into the family room, to, to read my Bible and to pray. But the other morning, I got a little stuck. I meant to get up out of bed and to go out and spend that time. But Lucas, our baby who still sleeps in his crib in the room, is evidently developing an in-the-dark radar system to know when you're traveling through the room. So I thought I'd just lay in bed and pray here while he goes back to sleep. That's hard. My eyes were heavy. It was very easy to go back to sleep. And I don't think I would have served Jesus much better than Peter and those disciples did. The prayer session number three is the climax. The Kidron Valley is the valley between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Jesus and the disciples would have traveled through that valley as they came over to spend this time at Gethsemane. And I imagine if our Lord could not have seen the parade of torches coming out for him, he could have heard the clanging of armor or the the barking of orders by officers. This is the account then of his denial and desertion and his agony and his appeal. Most of all this morning, I'm going to spend a little time on the application of this. Some lessons from the bitter cup when you and I are, are gripped by the jaws of trial. Essential to this entire episode is, is prayer. It'd be hard to make an application from this text without discussing prayer. This is what Jesus turned to. This is why Jesus went to be alone. This is how Jesus coped. And there's at least six marks of the prayer that Jesus made in his anguish. First, it was a persistent prayer. It's true that you and I should all have some kind of established time of prayer. That's wisdom. Some of you would even call it necessity. But it's equally true that throughout our day, we were to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As we read our Bibles, we read of Daniel. Daniel prayed three times a day. He prayed at set times throughout the day. We read of Nehemiah, who prays hastily. He prays on the fly. In his Gethsemane moment, Jesus prayed persistently. He prayed three times. Verse 44, he prayed the same thing three times. This is almost a reflex when we're in the grip of a trial. 
There's nothing wrong with praying the same prayer over and over again. In fact, I would argue that there are certain trials that so grip our minds, it's hard to think clearly. It's hard to say much more than a one-sentence prayer over and over again. Those prayers are heard by God, and they are welcomed by God. I think at times it's enough to get out a simple prayer. So great can the anguish be. The second type of prayer Jesus prayed was a dependent prayer. He's dependent upon God the Father, that's true, but who else is he dependent on in this passage? Three disciples. He's dependent upon his friends. Now, you and I might not normally think of Jesus this way, as someone who's, quote, in need. But in his humanity, Jesus, in this account, he's relying upon Peter and James and John. You know, I think that there's something to sharing our prayer requests with other people. We can, we, we should. We should be willing to, to share what's going on in our lives with other people and asking them to pray for us. And just so you know, it's not inconvenient to ask people to do this. <laughs> Jesus had no problem interrupting people's sleeps. Imagine that. Calling your friend three times through the night to make sure they're praying for you. That'd be a modern-day application, maybe taking it too far. But a good example, nevertheless, of that need for prayer from a friend. And on the flip side of that, if you and I say that we're going to pray for someone, what should we do? Pray for them. Absolutely. It's, It's easy to forget that commitment. And I would argue that's an important commitment. If we tell someone we're going to pray for them, we want to make sure that we do. A third way that Jesus prayed was personal. Jesus prayed in a very personal way. Now, we already mentioned that when Jesus prayed, he prayed to his Father. That's the model that he gave us. Remember, back in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches us how to pray. Pray then this way, our Father. Paul wrote something similar. God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the the trajectory of the Bible is for you and I to be praying to God the Father. Now, there's a few places where prayer is offered to Jesus. Stephen does this in Acts chapter 7, and Paul does it in 2 Corinthians 12. But nowhere are we instructed to pray to the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not prohibited. The Bible doesn't say that we shouldn't do that. I'm just telling you what the pattern and the direction of the Bible is. But the point I want to make here is that you and I are called to pray to to a near God, not a God who's distant, not a God who's far off, but to God or simply to Father. Jesus used the word Abba, Father, in Mark's account. And Abba is that that Aramaic word. Aramaic was the common language of the time. That's a more intimate way of of speaking to, to a father. It's a more personal way of saying dad. And you and I are are welcome. We're invited to come to God this way in the trial. And again, he's not a God who is far off, but he's a God who is near. And just to give you an idea of what you have, consider the unbeliever for a moment. The unbeliever does not have this relationship with God. The unbeliever cannot walk into the throne room and lay out his heart before the throne of God. 
The first prayer the unbeliever must make is a prayer of repentance, a prayer of acceptance of Jesus Christ. That is the first prayer God promises to hear. He doesn't obligate himself to the unbeliever's prayer, not to say that he doesn't hear them. And not to say that God is not a God of grace and a God of mercy who might not respond to the unbeliever. But these kinds of promises, this type of intimacy, this is reserved for the believer. Think of what we have. This type of prayer that Jesus prayed fourthly was a very raw prayer. He spoke to God in very raw terms. He bore his heart. Verses 37 to 38 describe Jesus as sorrowful, distressed, deeply grieved. I am sure that this came through as he prayed to God. That's a good reminder for you and I that that we don't have to have it all together to come before God in prayer. We can pray as we are, where we are. You notice, too, in the prayers of Jesus in this account that at no time did he lose his reverence for God. I'm not saying that we would do that. He maintained a reverence for his father, but at the same time, he prayed his heart. He just spoke to God in the condition that he was in as he was. This prayer, fifthly, was a prayer that was honest. Jesus prayed very honestly to God. In verse 39, he expresses hope for a different plan. I believe that Jesus knew the plan. That's probably part of what made the cup extra bitter. I don't think that we want to know the plan. I don't think we want to know the outcome. I don't think that would be good for us. But he asks in verse 39, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. That's like you and I saying, Lord, this is a hard one. Can I have a different way? Can there be a a different outcome? Again, we're not trying to question God's wisdom. We're not trying to undermine his plan. We're simply asking in faith, and humility, trusting God. And the other side of this prayer request then is submission. Not only is Jesus praying, praying honestly, but, but he's also praying submissively. And Jesus submitted to what God determined. Verse 39, not as I will, but as you will. In verse 42, your will be done. He's praying for another way. Yet he's also saying, Lord, if things are to remain this way, I accept them. He's not blaming God. He doesn't get angry with God. In fact, I want to make the argument that prayer changed Jesus. Follow me here for a moment. Verse 39. Jesus speaks of a possibility that there might be some other way. He makes a request. In his second prayer session, verse 42, he seems more settled if this cannot pass away, that almost is more of an acceptance of what is to come. And then returning from session three, verse 46, what does he say? He says, get up, let us be going. It's almost as though that Jesus is now the one leading the disciples toward the outcome. How does this happen? Prayer changes things. Prayer changes the one praying. Now the trial will remain. The suffering will continue, but prayer changes you and I in that storm. So in the grip of a trial, pray. Pray like Christ. Pray persistent and dependent and personal and raw and honest 
and submissively. That's how Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, in the oil press. That's how you can pray in the press of your trial. But let me back up a moment here because I've been making an assumption. Let me ask you this morning, do you pray? Oh, of course we pray. We're Christians. All Christians pray. Do we? Someone once told me that there were two topics you're going to preach on that are going to make people particularly uncomfortable. The first is evangelism, and the second one is prayer. Because I think we all know in the back of our minds that we could be better at praying. I feel that way. I'm sure you do too. But at the same time, there might be some of us who have never been taught how to pray. We really don't know what to pray. We don't know when to pray or how to pray, what that even looks like. Some of us have, have been taught wrong. Maybe you're told that prayer is something that's reserved for those big emergencies or for mealtime. But prayer is for every Christian all the time. Amen. You and I can pray to God from anywhere. We can pray to God about anything. In fact, God calls us and invites us to. Is it wrong to say it's a command? We can simply talk to God throughout our day. And that's the beauty of prayer. Keeping in mind that, yes, there are trials when it's particularly more needful and poignant, but boy, what a gift it is to be able to talk to God and to have him hear us anytime. A second point of application here is is the nearness of Jesus in our trial. Our Lord is near to us in trial. And I don't mean just as, as, as God, but also as the God-man. This passage, I believe, has put on the full humanity of Jesus. It's put on display the full humanity of Jesus. I'm talking here, 86-inch big screen, full HD. This is a vivid picture of the human side of Jesus the Christ. He felt our experience. What does he say? My soul is deeply grieved. To what extent? He fell on his face to pray. Mark writes that he began to be very distressed and troubled. Luke records being in agony. He was praying very fervently. Now, to be clear, there are ways that Jesus experiences emotion like we do. And there's ways that he experiences emotion that are different than we do. Like us, he experienced the same type of emotions. Throughout his ministry, Jesus felt joy. He felt anger. He felt sadness. The cattle are lowing. The baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes? No. Jesus cried. Jesus wept. John 11, verse 35. As a baby, Jesus communicated the way babies do. He got cold. He got hungry. He cried. He understands the human experience. But in some ways, he's not like us. You and I live as fallen beings. Sin has tarnished the way you and I absorb experiences and the way we process emotions. Jesus lived as a perfect being. I believe that his capacity to feel and to experience, I believe it was felt more fully and more vividly than you and I feel. 
And I also believe this is a really important argument for his empathy. Because if Jesus felt more emphatically than you and I do, how much more can he come to our aid and understand our plight? Have you ever been so angry that you're practically yelling in prayer? Jesus was angry. Have you ever been so sad that you can hardly get out of bed? Jesus was sorrowful. This means that Jesus is is the God of our agonies, and he's the God of our sorrows, and he is well-equipped, fully equipped, better equipped to heal them and help us process them. You and I have Jesus. So in the press of suffering, in the jaws of trial, when you and I drink from the bitter cup, we have a God who's modeled that for us. A God who's given us a pattern on on how to manage it. And we have a God who draws near to our help, the God-man Jesus Christ. To close in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now today that need may exist for you. You're in need this morning of of the mercy and the grace that only God can give. Draw near to his throne. At the same time, this message may not necessarily apply today. File this one away. Because that bitter cup from which you and I drink, it may be coming this week. It may be coming next month. Surely there's one coming next year. So wherever you are, whenever it comes, never forget Jesus. Turn to Christ. He's a high priest who understands. He's a servant who suffered. And then a king who reigned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for the perfect plan that began with his birth. We celebrate this season and culminated in the cross and resurrection. Lord, no one could have devised that. No one could invent that or fathom that. That's the perfect plan of God, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the reminder that communion is that, you, that we participate through the bread and through the cup, that there's something deep and mysterious and something satisfying and gracious about this. I pray that you do a work in us as we partake today, that you give us a grace to navigate our trials and give us a grace to surrender them to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.